Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 12, the Persian-Greco Wars. In 518 BCE, Darius annexed parts of India, including the Punjab region of Gandhara, and he then went south to Karachi, where he took control of a major port on the Indian Ocean. They sailed down to the southern tip of Arabia and made contact with their southern province in Egypt. Needless to say, the Persians were expanding, and now now they had a way of communicating with their far eastern province, with their far southwestern province, without having to travel over land. They could just go down to the Indian Ocean, sail around the coast of Arabia, and there they were. They, they connected two very far parts of their empire. In 513 BCE, Darius put down a rebellion in Babylon, where King Nebuchadnezzar was executed by the Persians. This distraction, however, allowed for several tribes of Scythian warriors to sneak in from the Caucasus and raid the villages in the cities of northern Iraq and Turkey. Darius followed the Scythians on their rampage across the northern frontier of their empire and chased them over the Bosphorus into Thrace, which is modern-day Bulgaria. And right on the northern border of the Greek states, the Scythians were a group of vicious nomads who attacked in, in quick raids and then retreated, which really pissed off Darius. The chase led the Persians up the west coast of the Black Sea into modern-day Ukraine, north of the Crimea. And this is about the point where he ran out of supplies, so his army built several defensive fortresses and garrisoned them and then retreated the bulk of his army back into Thrace in Bulgaria. In 499 BCE, Darius had expanded the Persian Empire across the Bosphorus and completely annexed Thrace and taken more than half of Macedonia. The Persians were unstoppable. Darius appointed tyrants to rule over the new western provinces in his empire. The Persian Empire gave trading monopolies to the Phoenicians, which crippled several Greek cities that relied on sea trade. And this really did not sit well with Ionian cities. And they put a call out to every Greek state to help them push back the Persians. So it's very important to note now that even though Darius was following the Scythian bandits into the new territory in the west, his empire was expanding into Europe now. Like there's no no getting around it. The Persians were in Europe. They had part of northern Greece. They had part of the Ukraine, part of Bulgaria, Romania. And uh, there's no wonder the Greeks saw this as a threat. So there's another thought here. When um, Darius was following the Scythians up the coast there, the Scythians were um, doing a thing called scorched earth. What they do is they destroy, destroyed everything as they were re- uh, running away, uh, which would made it really difficult for Darius to get provisions. However, it backfired on the Scythians because their allies were losing their food as well. So uh, it backfired on the Scythians and ended up making Darius not the bad guy. Yeah, it goes to show if you're going to do a scorched earth policy and all you do is burn your allies' land, you're not really making any friends. In 498 BC, a group of Athenians and other Greek polis sailed across the Aegean Sea to help the Ionian Greeks invade the capital city of Sardis. The mob of Greeks completely burned Sardis to the ground. It was a strong coordinated attack that really got the attention of Darius. While the Greeks rebelled in Ionia, Darius sent 600 ships to squash the rebellion. Unfortunately for the Greek admiral, there had been a secret deal between Darius and the Greeks of Samos, as 60 ships left the Greeks ranks. This completely destroyed the formation planned by the Greek admiral, and the Persian navy quickly destroyed the Greek ships. The 
few Greeks who survived returned to their home city-states. The Ionian Revolt had officially been crushed. The Ionian Revolt infuriated him so much that he told his servant to remind him every single day while serving dinner, remember the Athenians. Until now, he hadn't had any contact with them, but now he was dead set on destroying Athens. He also vowed to bring his empire to Athens and burn it to the ground as they had done to Sardis. Darius now had control over the Aegean Sea and only had to subdue them on land now, and he spent the next several years preparing for complete Greek submission. In 493 BCE, Darius defeated the Macedonians completely, but left them with a very fair treaty that allowed them to retain their independence. However, Darius wasn't done. He was set on conquering all of Greece. Hypaeus, the tyrant who used to rule over Athens, but was expelled when they founded democracy, was among the Persians when they invaded. He had an agreement with Darius to rule over all of Greece as a governor or satrap as long as he swore allegiance to the empire. Hearing that the Persians were on their border, approaching the city of Marathon, the Athenians sent their best messenger running full speed to Sparta in order to gain support in the upcoming battle. Unfortunately for the Athenians, it was the Carne Festival in Sparta and they were forbidden from marching into war. This festival seems to always come up when there's a Persian invasion. It makes you think this is another one of those Persian ploys where they use the locals' superstitions against them. Yeah, put, that, that would make sense. Put cats on your shield, attack during the Carnet Festival. It yeah. doesn't seem to be an accident. I think it's just another one. Yeah. Too much coincidence. In 490 BCE, Darius arrived with a large army and invaded mainland Greece, arriving at Eretria and marching on to Marathon. The Battle of Marathon was an epic turning point in the tides, where 10,000 Greeks, mostly Athenians, formed a grand phalanx on top of a hill, intercepting Darius's army of over 50,000 men. The Greeks were outnumbered, but their position on the high hill made them impervious to attack. The chariots had no way of making it up the steep rocks, so the Greeks really had time to think about how they were going to carry out this battle. And they spent days on the hill waiting for the best opportunity to attack. The major weapon the Persian Empire had was the sheer amount of archers. Like millions of archers. Well, not millions. 100,000 archers. There were so many archers in this army that they were that they filled the sky with millions of arrows at a time. It was machine gun fire, and it pelted the tightly formed phalanx of the Greek army. This tactic made it almost impossible for the Greeks to gain any advancement on the Persian. But the Greeks did something completely unexpected. They stretched their phalanx out to match the length of the Persian army. And they reinforced their flanks with their strongest soldiers. Just for the record, there were only 50,000 archers. Or 50,000 Persians. There weren't a million Persians. There weren't 100,000 archers. But they... It they might have seemed like it. Yeah, they, they definitely outnumbered the Greeks. And they had a lot of archers. They focused on archery. It was their... Chariots and archers were their strongest weapons. So for four days and nights, the two armies sort of faced each other off. The Persians had the low land near the sea where their ships were anchored, and the Greek hoplites were up in the mountains forming their phalanx. And for four days, nothing really happened. But then, the Persians, they, they had to feed all their troops. They couldn't just sit there and wait. And what they did one night in the middle of darkness, they loaded almost half of their troops, I believe it was most of their cavalry and uh, chariots, into the ships and sailed them down to Athens in order to surprise attack them while Athens 
Athens was completely undefended. But the Greeks did see the ships try and retreat, so they knew now was their time. They had to defeat the Persians and then double-time march down to Athens and defend them from another attack. So with this forced hand, and also with the Persian army now split in half, the numbers were a little more even. The Greeks had around 10,000 troops and the Persians were down to nearly 12,000. The Greeks descended from the hills in their formation stretched out really thin to try and match the Persian lines, which actually weakened their center. And then the Persians, seeing that the Greeks were now in range, just started firing arrows, like unleashed hundreds of thousands of arrows. I'm saying hundreds of thousands because I'm sure 10,000 archers can shoot more than 10 10 arrows. (laughs) But um, if you think about it, let's say they had 8,000 archers. How many arrows does that archer have? 40, 50? So you go 8,000 times 50. I'm sure that's more than 100,000. So you just imagine all these arrows raining down on the on the Greeks. The only thing is, is the Greeks did something completely different and unexpected. The Athenians were ordered to charge the enemy in a full sprint for the last 100 meters. And even though they had a lot of, even though a lot of them were going down by the arrows, they also knew that most of them would make it through. And once the fully iron armored Athenians with their iron swords broke through the first rank of Persian archers, it was a bloodbath. The Athenians just became human cutting machines and they chopped their way through row after row of archers and wicker and leather armored Persians. Chaos erupted in the Persian army as they watched the unstoppable killing cutting wave of Athenians make their way through the army towards the ships. Now because the Greek army was stretched out very thin and their center was weak it gave the persians a sense of victory when it really wasn't they they sheer weight of the persians pushed through the greek center but it also separated the persian center from their flanks and the the greek flanks they were still eight deep phalanxes so they crushed the persian flanks and then surrounded the persians who were left on the battlefield it it was a slaughter now several persians escaped and they ran back to their ships in order to get off of the beach but as the greeks chased them some of them would grab onto the persian ships drag them back to the beaches and set them on fire preventing anyone from leaving and this was this was a bloodbath but also the greeks were desperate because they knew they had to defeat this army and then march all the way back to their city of athens in order to prevent another invasion of the persians who had left the night before A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. After the defeat at Marathon, the Greeks hustled down to Athens and got there just in time because uh, the Persian fleets were arriving and they were able to hold them off from actually landing. They kept them at bay, so they saved the city. Several days later, the Spartan reinforcements arrived at Marathon. When they visited the battlefields, they saw mountains of corpses. So many thousands of Persians were slaughtered and it seemed like far less Greeks were killed. The Spartans were battle-hungry and were jealous of the fame and heroism Athens was getting. 
They wanted a chance to fight the Persians. In 486 BCE, while Darius was planning his second invasion of Greece, he passed away, leaving his son Xerxes as the king of kings. Now, Darius was known for many temples he commissioned throughout his empire that were not Zoroastrian. So although we mostly know him for instigating the Greeks, he was actually a very effective ruler in keeping his empire running. And people were treated very fairly, once they submitted, of course. His empire was even bigger than when he received it. The Persians had almost completely surrounded the Black Sea and spread across North Africa as far as Libya. There were talks that they were planning to go as far as Carthage, but because a lot of their uh, allies were Phoenicians, they they would not fight their, their old allies. So they kind of stopped there. But uh, with the Xerxes, now the king of kings, he had inherited several rebellions in Babylon and Egypt, which he quickly attended to, squashing them out completely. But he was constantly reminded by his advisors of his father's plans to invade Greece. You know, there's the possibility that Xerxes didn't even care about the barbarians on his western frontier when there were so many issues to tend with within the body of his empire. The Greeks were almost forgettable to a man as powerful as Xerxes. But he did decide to fulfill his father's plans and invade Greece again. In 484 BCE, Xerxes started to build his invasion army. He pulled warriors from all the corners of his empire, and he put together one of the most racially diverse armies ever assembled. Xerxes is making sure that he has every contingency covered when he goes to war. And with the empire as big as it is, there were a lot of men to get together and also a lot of food to prepare to feed all these soldiers once they are gathered. You know, it took a lot of preparation to launch an invasion of this magnitude in this era. But in 481 BCE, Xerxes sets out with his army. But unfortunately, a sudden storm destroyed the only bridge they had that crossed from Asia into Europe. And Xerxes was so mad at this turn of events that he is said to have ordered the very water lashed 300 times for its insolence. So before we get into the very famous battle where Xerxes invaded Greece with the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, it's very important to focus our attentions on the western borders of greater Greece, uh, especially or specifically to the island of Sicily. What most people don't know is during this time, during the the Persian Wars, there was another front in the war. 300,000, well, that's definitely an exaggeration, but that's what they say. 300,000 Carthaginians invaded Sicily and attacked the Greek territories on that island. And we've heard a theory that it's possible the Carthaginians were in contact with the Persians because the original Phoenicians had joined the Persian Empire and the Carthaginians were Phoenicians, so why wouldn't they be in communication with each other? And if they're going to invade Greece from the west, or from the east, why not invade them from the west at the same time, like a pincer move? But as we kind of looked into it, we realized that, you know, it might not have been the full conspiracy theory that we originally thought. There definitely were two fronts two fronts to this war, but it's also very possible that the war would have happened no matter what. And the more we looked into it, the more we realized that the story of the Greeks and the Carthaginians in Sicily are, it's just another wild story all on its own. Yeah, well, um, what we noticed was during the time when uh, Xerxes was starting to do his thing in 484 BC, uh, we saw this map, they were describing what was going on with the Greek um, colonies and they more or less had the south and the east of Sicily. And here, what happened was over the last several years, the uh, Carthaginians had opened up their 
um, what do you call those things? Like colonies. Colonies on the on the entire north, the entire northern part of Sicily, like from the west to the east. So they had just as much territory as the Greeks did, and um, so it could have been just a, a thing of you know let's take over the whole island, especially if they're weak in the east. Let's let's go for it. So this is when the Carthaginians got involved, and. Um, should we talk about that battle a little bit? We can go into it a little bit. Yeah. From what we watched and we saw was that uh, it centered on a, a place called... Hymera? Hy- yeah. Hymera? It's getting all mixed up here, but Hymera on the north coast. And uh, the uh, Carthaginians came in with a big naval bla- uh, plan and they set up a big camp for their naval. And then inland they had a big camp for their army. And what apparently happened was... Uh, the guys from the other town, like I think it was Syracuse or Galen's, whatever mm-hmm. it was, they came and they pre- went around to where the Navy was, came from the opposite direction, and pretended they were kind of like a bunch of reinforcements coming from the rest of the Carthaginian army, and they got right into the camp of the Navy, right into them, and they, they weren't even questioned. They, they did, had no idea that they, these were Greeks, and the next thing you know, they were all slaughtered. Yeah, this is one of those battles where... Right when you think one side is winning, they do something stupid. And, and then the other side gets the advantage. Uh, one of those was, yeah, the, the Greeks managed to sneak into the Carthaginian camp and surprise attacked them and started killing everyone. And then they signaled their other troops to go attack from the other end. And, and it pushes them on, on the defensive. The Carthaginians try to run away and the Greeks pursue them. But then they get distracted by gold and wealth and they stop fighting and they all start plundering plundering for the gold. Well, that just gives the Carthaginians, or well, actually their allies, the Iberians. Iberians come from Spain. And uh, yeah, now, now they can regroup and then they start attacking the Greeks. So it's... Like the Greeks were winning, they stopped to pick up gold, and then their enemy comes back and starts attacking them. But like the overall result of this battle was, uh, it was a massive hundred thousand plus war going on between the Greek colonies and the Carthaginian colonies at the exact same time as the Persian Wars with the Battle of Thermopylae. And the result was the Greeks won. Like they, they killed every single one of the Carthaginian soldiers who came from Africa. And they think there was, like, they say 300,000, but we heard it's probably more likely that it was 50,000 to 60,000 Carthaginians that were in the invasion, but all of them died. Like, they all died, every one of them. And, you know, that's almost as worthy of an episode on its own. In 480 BC, Xerxes attempts another cross at the Bosphorus. This time he is successful, and the largest army ever assembled begins its march towards Athens. Herodotus, the historian, says that over 5 million Persian soldiers crossed the Bosphorus. 
but most scholars agree it was probably closer to 100,000 soldiers. Oh, slight discrepancy. <laughs> Still a very large army and one not to be underestimated. What is to be noted here is that most of the Greek city-states remained neutral in this war, while many other Greek city-states were on the Persian side and had been since Cyrus the Great. The two major polis that opposed the Persian dominance were Athens and Sparta. And now the Persians were marching their army around the Aegean and sailing with them were a thousand ships. Again, the Spartans are stuck celebrating the Carneia festival and can't go to war. So the king Leonidas handpicks his 300 best Spartans to march with him to Thermopylae. Along the way, the recruited they recruited almost 7,000 men from other Greek cities to accompany them to the fire gates, which is a narrow pass on the side of the cliffs and ocean. This narrow pass allowed their phalanx to hold out against 300,000 soldiers. The continuously defeated Persian attacks and their iron shields repelled the millions of arrows. They continuously defeated the Persian attacks and their iron shields repelled the millions of arrows fired at them. In this battle, the Spartans and allies held out for seven days while they systematically repelled attack after attack, killing an estimated 20,000 Persian soldiers. Herodotus states that a traitor to the Spartans shows the Persians a mountain pass that would allow the Persians to flank the Spartans. Once Leonidas heard they were being outmaneuvered, he sent the bulk of his forces back to Athens and remained with 300 Spartans and over a thousand other Greeks, including Athenians and Helots. The major reason Xerxes' superior army failed in this spot was because of the geography. The close mountain terrain was perfect for a phalanx that was connected shield to shield, while the Persian cavalry was developed for fighting on the open plains of the Middle East. In the end, the Persians slaughtered everyone who remained, including Leonidas himself. So while the Spartans were duking it out in Thermopylae, the Athenian navy sailed up and intercepted the Persian navy at Artemisium, Artemisium, where they managed to hold off the Persian advance, sinking over 400 vessels while only losing 100. With a Greek navy fighting back a Persian attack and Xerxes and his army pushing through Thermopylae, the Greeks had no choice but to abandon the city of Athens. Since the retreating Greek ships made it to Athens before the marching Persians, they were able to completely evacuate the Athenians to Corinth and the surrounding area. Xerxes wasted no time in burning the entire city to the ground. This was the closest the Persians ever came to conquering Greece. But burning Athens to the ground was a hollow victory if the entire navy was still left alive. Xerxes needed to find the Athens, find the Athenian navy, and destroy it once and for all. Under the command of his king, a Greek soldier pretended to defect to the Persians in exchange for a reward. The Persians paid him. The Persians paid him and revealed that the Athenians were in a disarray, and their navy was hiding in the Straits of Salamis. And Xerxes decided it was now or never, and sent his entire navy into the Straits to hunt down the hiding Athenians. Unfortunately for Xerxes, the traitor had given him false information. The Athenian fleet was not in disarray, and was in fact in a very tight battle formation, very similar to the way the Spartans fought at Thermopylae. The narrow straits and the tight formation of Athenian battleships, which were very superior to the Persians, it didn't matter that the Persians outnumbered the Athenians. Now these Athenian ships were called 
triremes, because they had three levels of oarsmen under the deck. The amount of oars and their position made the ships extremely maneuverable. And with a solid bronze battering ram at the bow of the ship, they packed a deadly punch. These ships rammed against the Persian vessels, shattering their hulls, while warriors boarded the enemy's ship and cut them all to pieces. Knowing that the winds in this strait change at a certain time of the day, the Greeks feigned to retreat and backed their ships as far into the strait as they could go. The whole time the Persians pursued them, and they thought they were blocking the Greeks in. When the, fi- when the winds finally did change, it slowed the Persians down, and sped the Greeks up. The Greeks exploded out into attack. And to make matters worse, the faster Greek ships would circle the Persian fleet, confusing them and causing them to cluster and bump into each other, and they became completely immobile. Xerxes was perched on top of a mountain watching this entire battle, thinking he was going to watch the Athenian navy get decimated, slaughtered even. Unfortunately, it was the opposite, and he watched his ships sink one by one. With his fleet completely destroyed and the winter rapidly approaching, Xerxes had no choice but to return home to his capital and left his army in Greece to dominate the new province. Now, I can only imagine uh, Xerxes up on that mountain just losing his mind as he watched all these ships just fall apart right before his eyes, and he's too far away to command them or do anything. You think if he had the river lashed 300 times because it broke his bridge, I could just picture the rage on this man's face. But um, this also shows how the Greeks fight in the water as well as in land when... When they have their navy uh, lined up, they're basically forming a phalanx. And they use the same tactics in the water, which I, I actually didn't know that before. And with all these oarsmen, and I think they were saying there's like 144 oarsmen per boat, all rowing as fast as they can at the same time. Like these ships really do explode out in force and they just shatter the enemy ships. And, the, and then the boards on top, like the, the decks, they just become a battleground. It's like a land battle at sea on top of the boats. In 479 BC, the Greeks fortified the narrow passage leading into the Peloponnese, making a final stand against the Persians. All the while, the Persian army was roaming the countryside, pillaging every village they came across. The Persians camped in Palatia with hundreds of thousands of soldiers. With over 100,000 Greek hoplites and reservists from other Greek cities, they formed themselves in the high mountains and looked down on the Persian camp. For several days, the two armies watched each other, making sacrifices and waiting for a sign from their god to attack. If the Greeks left the mountaintops to fight the Persians, they would be mowed down by the cavalry. And if the Persians attempted to climb the mountainside, they would be cut to pieces. It was a standoff. But when the Persians cut off the supply chain that was feeding the Spartans, it was only a matter of time before something had to give. The Greeks decided a retreat would be the best decision, and the many tribes of Greeks broke off in their own unusual way, confusing the Persian commander. So the Persian commander thought he was witnessing the Greeks panic and drop their weapons, so he just immediately ordered an attack, thinking the battle was over. The Theban Greeks, who had sided with the Persians in this war... So there's Greeks on the Persians fighting the Athenian Greeks. Advanced against the Athenians in a hoplite face-off. The Persian cavalry tried to break through the Spartan phalanx but couldn't get past their spears. And the Persian infantry charged up the hill, hoping the archers would have killed most of the Spartans. But their shields protected almost all of them. So when the Greeks burst out and started charging the Persians, they maintained the high ground. Causing the maximum amount of casualties on the Persians. 
And as they got fighting closer to the flat plains, a Greek soldier threw a rock threw a rock and killed the Persian general, causing complete chaos in the Persian army. So, like, they're just charging down this hill, slaughtering all of them, and the fact that one of them threw a rock and killed the general, like, this is a horrible battle for the Persians. But it caused complete chaos in the Persian army. And the, and the whole army broke off and fled for the city of Thebes. And the Persians who stayed and fought, they were killed right to the very last man. Once the Persians were completely defeated on the battlefield, they had to hunt down the ones who who fled. And when they found them hiding in Thebes, every one of the Persians were executed. And when they found Xerxes' abandoned tent and saw all the treasure inside of it, like this is just his personal tent on campaign, they said the treasures made the richest of all the Greeks look penniless. And this is just the camp. Like, this isn't even the capital city at this point. This marks the end of the Persian Wars. Although the Greeks did not know that at the time, Xerxes was not defeated. Not at all. In fact, when he went home to his empire, he treated it like a victory because he burned the city of Athens to the ground, just like he said he would. But in Greece, everyone just thought they were going to come back like they did before. The last time it took 10 years. How long would it be this time? All the Greeks knew was that they had to be ready when they returned. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.